morning, TLC. It's Torin. Super excited to be with you this morning. We are kicking off a brand new series called Needless. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. What does Coolio, Tupac, Kanye, and Biggie have in common with Bach, Bernstein, and Schubert? Have in common with Eastwood, John Wayne, and Titanic? Have in common with the Grateful Dead, Pink Floyd, and Megadeth? Have in common with Duke Ellington, Mahalia Jackson, and you too? You want to know what they have in common? They have in common that along with a number of other movies and musicians and artists, they have all at one point in their artistic careers quoted Psalm 23. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but when I hear Psalm 23, um, I'll be honest, uh, it doesn't really get me super excited. Well, it does now, but it didn't for a long time. In fact, uh, when I was a kid, I always kind of associated Psalm 23 with like funerals. And, and despair. And so honestly, for a really long time, uh, I wasn't a huge fan of Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 23 kind of felt like that, that thing that only got brought up when something bad was happening. Uh, now, I started thinking a little bit more about Psalm 23 uh, probably a, a couple of years ago. I know that sounds weird because like I'm a pastor and like Psalm 23 should be like my jam and all that, but, but it wasn't. And I started trying to think, like, why? Why, why do I think that that is? Why, why have I always kind of kept Psalm 23 on the periphery of biblical passages that I am passionate about or really seem to care about and want to learn from? And, and I started thinking, and I think maybe a, a piece of it was some of those connections I had from my childhood, that it was really, uh, you know, about graveside services and funerals and, you know, when things are going really, really bad. And then I thought, I think some of it's also the fact that there's a lot of folks that don't really care about Jesus and, and, and following him, uh, and they kind of use Psalm 23 like a, I don't know, like a, like a good luck charm, like, like a, a rabbit's foot, you know, like it's this, it's this talisman that they kind of carry around uh, with them. That's why I think it actually comes up so much in pop culture. Uh, I also started to think that, I think some of it is the fact that Psalm 23 is so ubiquitous. It's, it's common, like it's everywhere. And, and things that are common are often seen as having less value, right? It wasn't until probably, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I was talking with my mentor for the last 20 years, and he said uh, that he had started uh, really spending time meditating on Psalm 23. And then he told me he wasn't just meditating on Psalm 23, he was actually really just meditating on Psalm 23, just that first verse. And then he told me he wasn't actually really meditating on the entire verse, but really just one half of that verse. And then he said, and he's not just meditating on that one half of the verse for like a day or a week, he'd been meditating on it for months, in fact planned to be meditating on that one verse for the entire year. And I was like, bro, like, whoa, that, there's something there, something that I've been missing. And so that's when it really began to capture my imagination. And what I have realized is that Psalm 23, I think, is actually made for such a time as this. Uh, we weren't actually supposed to be studying Psalms, uh, Psalm 23, excuse me. Uh, in fact, what we were supposed to be doing is Romans. 
Uh, and we just felt like the Spirit say to us, I want you to push that off until the fall, and I want you to take my people and sit them in Psalm 23. And maybe you kind of, though, resonate with me, where you're like, man, I feel like I've heard it, it's kind of played out, and so it's just kind of sitting there over, you know, like in this one side of your kind of mind. You know it, but you're like, oh, the idea of sitting in Psalm 23 for a number of weeks just kind of feels... I don't know, boring, repetitive, like what am I really going to get? And I want to tell you that, friends, like it has been transforming my heart and my mind. And I think that as we sit in it, the Spirit wants to do something in our lives as well. So what I'd love for us to do is just grab your Bibles and open up to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, and we're actually going to uh, read it all together. So what I would love for you to do is go ahead and with your Bible... And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it's going to be on the screen. But I'd like you to actually stand up, wherever you're at right now in your home. Just go ahead and stand up, and we're going to read it together out loud. Psalm 23, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, Friends, this morning we are going to be focusing on the five most important words that I think are actually found in this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, I want you right now just to say that with me. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Now what I want you to do is turn to the people that you happen to be sitting with right now. Your family, friends, whoever it is, a roommate. And I want you to say to them, is the Lord your shepherd? Go ahead and ask them that question right now. Is the Lord your shepherd? Uh, I'll be honest, there isn't a more powerful, a more personal, a more practical question than you can ever ask yourself or anybody else. Uh, how, How we answer that question has massive ramifications for all of our lives. It is the most important question anyone can ever ask you. Uh, David could say the Lord was his shepherd. Why could David say that? Why could David say that the Lord was his shepherd? And what did that actually mean for him? Uh, Look, David was a shepherd. David understood what it meant to be a shepherd. Not only was he a shepherd, but he came from a line of shepherds. He, he had been a shepherd when he was a boy, and up through his young adult years, David knew what it meant to be a shepherd. David also, because of that, knew what it meant to be a sheep. Now, when David writes this psalm, he's the king of Israel. And yet, he considers himself a sheep. Uh, I was reading uh, this particular book about Psalm 23, and and one of the things that it said in there is that everything in a sheep's life depends on the shepherd. Everything in a sheep's life depends 
on the shepherd. Uh, the book is actually written by a shepherd. He actually grew up in East Africa around uh, nomadic herding tribes that, that were ranchers and, and had cattle and had sheep. And so he observed that like as a boy growing up. And then when he got older, he actually became a sheep uh, rancher himself, a shepherd. And so there's all these really cool insights that, that he kind of shares about what it means to, to be a shepherd, uh, what it actually looks like. And uh, he, he shares this one particular story of uh, the cattle ranch that actually butted up next to his. And he says that particular uh, sheep rancher didn't take good care of his sheep at all. In fact, he says that that, that rancher's sheep were often known to be malnourished and weak and, and sick with parasites. And, and he shares this. He says, again and again they would come and stand at the fence staring blankly through the woven wire at the green, lush pastures that my flock enjoyed. He says, I know had they been able to speak, I am sure they would have said, oh, to be set free from this awful owner. Like they would have just looked out and thought, man, if I could only be there, if I could only enjoy that grass, that pasture, that life, You see, David understood that God was his shepherd. He knew what that meant. Now, uh, David didn't always have, though, a perfect life. If we kind of know King David's story, he he goes from being a shepherd boy, right, to then going off to deliver some supplies to his brothers at the front line of a war with the Philistines. He trusts God and says, God will handle Goliath, that giant. I ain't worried about him. Let me go and battle him. I'll deal with it. He beats Goliath. Israel wins the war. And David goes from zero to hero. Like he's this national hero. Everybody knows about him. And then King Saul, the king at the time, actually then starts to get jealous of David. And his jealousy turns into fits of rage. And he actually decides he's going to kill David. In fact, he tries to kill David on multiple occasions. David goes from zero to hero to being a fugitive, having to run away in fear of his life. Multiple times he has the opportunity to kill Saul. In fact, people say, David, God's delivered Saul into your hands. Like, man, go take him out. David never did, even though Saul was trying to kill him, was hunting him like a dog. David wouldn't kill Saul. Why? It's actually the exact same reason That he knew God was his shepherd. Because he knew who God was and that God was actually in control. Uh, This, friends, is true of us. You see, David had learned through scripture and experience who Yahweh truly was. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, the word Lord there is the proper name for God. It's the name Yahweh. Whenever you see L-O-R-D and it's like capitalized, the whole, that means Yahweh, that's God's proper name. And and, and David says, I know what my God is like. And he had learned what God was like because he had been brought up to understand and know the scripture. And it wasn't just that. He actually lived it out. And when he lived it out and obeyed it, he began to experience what God is like, that God is actually good. Even when things around him didn't feel good, even when things were hard, he still knew God was who he said he was. The creator, the sustainer, the one who's in control. You see, friends, our biggest problem, I think, is that our God is too small. Our biggest problem is that our God is too small. Look, uh, I 
remember being a kid, and uh, I had a best friend, his name was Pat, Patrick McCullough, lived across the street from me when we lived in Chicago, and I remember going over to Pat's house every single day in the summertime. We wouldn't knock on the doors, we would literally go up to each other's door, and we would just yell, yo, Pat, and he would come running down, and I did the same thing, uh, uh, or I would do the same thing when he would yell my name, we played together all the time. Uh, Pat didn't go to church very often, and I wanted Pat to know about God. Uh, so I, I remember one day I was having a conversation. I think I was probably like six or seven years old. And I'm trying to explain what God's like. And somehow I had gotten into my mind that God was big, right? God was big. So I'm like, yo, Pat, like God is big, dude. Like he, his feet are huge. And, and, and Pat was like, like the size of this wagon? And I was like, no, man, like way bigger. Like, like the size of, of like this whole block. Like his foot would fit on this, like it'd be the size of the whole block. And we were like, whoa. And then we both looked at each other and were like, I bet it's even bigger than that. Like a football field. Because that was the biggest we could imagine, right? That was like as large as we could possibly like understand. And I think though the problem is, is we often grow up and we kind of like know, like I know God doesn't have a foot the size of a football field. Like I know that now. You know, my God kind of gets a little bit bigger as I grow up. But I still think we, we make God way, way too small. It's kind of like the scene in, in uh, Austin Powers, the, the movie back in, what was that, I don't know, 2000s, 90s, I don't even remember, but Dr. Evil, uh, you, you probably remember this. Dr. Evil, he, uh, he's talking to his cronies and he says, yo, we're going to like, you know, extort money from the world, we're going to steal this nuclear warhead and, and then we're going to tell them they're going to blow up the world unless they give us, and he looks at them all. One million dollars, right? And I, all the cronies are like, yo, that, that ain't that much money, bro. Like, maybe 1960, like, when you were cryogenically frozen. But now in, like, late 90s, that's not much money for anybody. And they're kind of laughing at him. And I think that's often how we are with God. Like, we've kind of grown up, like, and our God is, is bigger, but we still think God's, like, one million dollars. Like, that, that's... That's where we get to. And I was thinking about, like, how, how do you know? Like, how can you tell if your God's too small? Ask these three questions. Are you afraid of anything right now? Is there anything that causes fear and anxiety? Uh, is there anything that you're worried about right now? Is there anything that you don't have that you think that you need right now? Uh, if you answered yes to any of those questions, then your God is too small. Now, now, I don't mean that God is actually too small. I just mean that our understanding of him is too small. Now, I, I'm not trying to like lay a guilt trip on anybody, because quite honestly, uh, I can answer yes to almost all of those questions. But I've come to realize that it's because I, I, I forget who God truly is. And certainly I'm not talking about mental health struggles that so many of us have. Man, I, I've been aware of so many folks, uh, friends of mine, that like this whole stressful time of the pandemic has, has actually uh, caused depression to be at all-time highs. Many of us are feeling it. I've experienced days when I'm like, man, I don't feel like myself. But I've also come to realize that in the midst of that, some of it is because I, I don't realize how big God actually is. 
The reason that David could pen these words is because he knew how big God was. He said, the Lord, and he understood what Yahweh actually meant. The Lord is my shepherd. That's why in Psalm 103, if we flip over there, we read these words that David also penned. Starting in verse 2, he says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. That's who God is. And David was reminding himself of this. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. That's who God is. David was reminding himself of this. Who satisfies your desires with good things. Not just the things you need, but even your desires. God satisfies them with good things. That's who God is. And so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. That's who God is, David was reminding himself. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's who God is. David had to remind himself of this. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. That's who God is, my friends. David understood that. Uh, David understood that, that, that the heavens are so far above the earth and God's love, just like that, is immeasurable. Uh, have you ever been out in the country, like deep out into the country, and you can't like see any light except for the light in the sky? Uh, we live by the airport now, and the airport has big, bright lights on like all the time at night, so we can barely see any stars at our house. But I remember about uh, 10 years ago, I was in Africa in Mozambique, and we were literally in this tiny, tiny little village that was miles, I mean miles and miles from any electricity. We were in like nowhere, sleeping in a tent, and I remember we were sitting at a table that night and looking up and and it was unbelievable. Like, it wasn't like I was seeing individual stars. It was like the stars were a blanket of light just covering the entire night sky. Uh, let me tell you a few things about stars that, that I learned. Uh, do you know how many stars there actually are? Uh, scientists estimate that there are 100 billion galaxies. All right? Now, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. That's just one of those 100 billion. And in our galaxy alone, which is not the biggest galaxy by any stretch of the imagination, they think that there are over 300 billion stars. In fact, they estimate the total number of observable stars as 70 billion trillion stars. I didn't even know that was a real number. 70 billion trillion observable stars. That's how many stars they think exist. Uh, did you know that the closest star to Earth besides the sun is a star called Proxima Centauri? Proxima Centauri. Now, uh, Proxima Centauri is in the Alpha Centauri uh, star range, and, and, and Proxima Centauri is about four light years away. So if you could travel at the speed of light, you could get there in about four years. Obviously, we don't have anything that can travel at the speed of light. Uh, the fastest thing that, that I'm aware of is a... Uh, uh, it's called Voyager 1. I think it's like a satellite that's doing deep space exploration. So it was launched into space, and then they like shot that thing out. 
Voyager 1 is currently going at 38,000 miles per hour into space. 38,000 miles per hour. That, I can't even like really comprehend how fast that is. At that speed, 38,000 miles per hour, it would still take 75,000 years before Voyager 1 could get to Proxima Centauri. And that's the closest star to us. Friends, do you have any understanding, comprehension of the vastness of God and his creation? If I were to go outside right now, uh, I could grab a handful of dirt. And I would hold that handful of dirt up. And it would be just a tiny little fraction of the dirt covering all of the earth, right? I mean, we're talking a tiny fraction. And yet, if I was to take that little clump of dirt and put it under an electron microscope, I would find billions upon billions of microorganisms within just that small handful of dirt. And those microorganisms would have cellular structures so complex that scientists don't even know what most of them do or how they function. In that one small little clump of dirt, God is vast, he is transcendent, he is huge, and yet he is so packed full of life, even in the smallest of things. Friends, one of our problems is that our God is so often way, way too small. When David says, the Lord Yahweh, the one who created everything by thinking it in his mind and speaking it into existence with his words, he is my shepherd. That's why David didn't have to be afraid. That's why David didn't have lack. That's why David wasn't worried in the midst of a pandemic when things weren't going his way. Not because it wasn't still hard. It absolutely was. He experienced hard things like that. But he could still say with assurance because he believed the scripture and had lived the scripture out in obedience and had experienced, real legit experience that God was who he said he was. I think one of the reasons a lot of times is not just that our God isn't too big. It's the fact that we're like half in, half out. Like we kind of believe, but we still want to kind of take care of things ourselves. We still want to make it happen ourselves. And, 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 and I know a lot of us kind of feel that way at times. Like I'm like, God, I'm with you. Like I want you. I want to, I want to be with you and I want to trust you. But I'm also still going to have this plan B over here. And God's like, look, you'll never understand who I am and what I'm like if you got a plan B. God wants to be our plan A, B, C, D, E, all the way to Z, all of it. That's what God desires. God made the stars that are light years away, that we can't even count. God made the, the microorganisms in a handful of dirt. God did all of that. And you see, David didn't just know who God was. David knew what God owned. Psalm 24 Right after Psalm 23, David starts off with this. He says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns it all. It's his. David's like, yo, I can trust the God who made it all because he also owns it all. The Lord is my shepherd. Now flip over with me to John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. We're going to find out a little bit more about this shepherd. Because Jesus said, verse 7, 
Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. I protect them. I'm the gate. You can't get into the sheep without going through me. Jesus is like, look, I'll lay down my life for the sheep. I put the sheep ahead of my own needs. I bring them in and out, and I take them to good pastures where they're going to experience everything. Keep reading with me. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and life to the full. Come on now. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. You see, Jesus is like, I own the sheep. The sheep are mine. I paid for them with the price, the laying down of his life. He says, so when The hired hand sees the wolf coming. He abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen because at this point he's talking to a Jewish audience and he's telling them, hey, you're my sheep. Those of you that will follow me that will come into the gate through me, but there's Gentiles out there as well. Those are my sheep too. He says, they are not of the sheep pen, but I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. You see, you can't be owned by multiple shepherds. We all got to choose who we're going to belong to. Everybody serves someone or something. That's just the reality. Jesus is the good shepherd in Psalm 23, uh, in that same book, Philip Keller uh, writes this about what happened when he got his very first 30 sheep. They were young ewes that needed to be marked so that it would be known whose they were. And he says this, he says, Each shepherd has his own distinctive earmark that he cuts into one of the ears of a sheep. In this way, even at a distance, it's easy to determine to whom the sheep belongs. It was not the most pleasant procedure to catch each ewe in turn and lay her ear on a wooden block, then notch it deeply with the razor-sharp edge of the knife. There was pain for both of us. But from our mutual suffering, an indelible lifelong mark of ownership was made that could never be erased. And from then on, every sheep that came into my possession would bear my mark. Uh, This is the same thing that happens in the Old Testament. Uh, If a Jewish a person, a man or woman, uh, came under hardship. They could sell themselves uh, to another uh, Jewish family, a household, to become their servant. And after working for six years, they could earn back whatever debt that they owed, and then they would be freed on the seventh year. Not just freed, but they would actually be sent out with stuff, flocks, material goods and possessions from their master's household so that they could now restart their life. However, if the servant decided that they actually loved being with the master and actually wanted to become a part of their household, they could take themselves to the doorpost of the home and they could say to the master, I want you to make me a part of your household forever. And they would take their ear and they would put a piece of metal and they would punch it through and that would signify that they had now committed themselves to the care of that master, that household. They were now a member of that household. This is exactly what Jesus says we are. We are marked by the cross. We are marked by the cross. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are now 
dead to sin and alive to Christ. Paul talks all about this. In fact, when Paul writes the book of Romans, he starts off and he says, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word servant there is actually a Greek word, doulos, which means slave. Paul, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, one who has chosen to make Jesus his shepherd. Because Paul understood that Jesus was a good shepherd too, who would lay down his life for the sheep, who would protect them, who would bring them out to amazing, beautiful pastures. This, friends, is what God desires for you and me. Look, we all serve someone, right? Every single one of us. We serve someone, and our lives bear the mark of our masters. My life does, your life does. The question is, who are we serving? What are we serving? What marks are on our lives? Is it the mark of the cross? God is the one who created everything out of nothing by thinking it and then speaking it into existence. Stars and galaxies so vast and so far away that we can't even begin to comprehend it. Life so compact that there are billions of microorganisms in just a single handful of dirt. And yet God says, I choose you. I give my life for the sheep. I will take care of the sheep. You see, friends, when we begin to understand how big God is, what he truly is, that starts to help us understand why it's easy to trust that he would be our shepherd. To say, I want to be a part of his flock. I want to be under his care. Because everything he has, he then lays down for us. The Lord is my shepherd. Is the Lord your shepherd? Because when he is, everything is taken care of. Friends, don't settle for a lesser God. Father God, let us know you. God, let us know who you are from your word and let us believe it and trust it and live it out, act on it in obedience because when that happens, then it's not just knowledge, it becomes lived experience and we figure out that you are who you say you are and you are worthy of our praise and adoration and you are trustworthy and you take care of your sheep. God, I'm proud to be a part of your flock. Let me know you more. Let us know you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.